This is Classic Lutheran Preaching on KNNA LP 95.7, Lincoln, Nebraska. This is Pastor John Schmidt with an abridged presentation of Martin Luther's sermon for the third Sunday after the Epiphany. This is from the John Nicholas Lenker Collection, published in 1905 and reissued by Baker Bookhouse in 1983. This text will begin in Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 5. And when he was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth in the house sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And he saith unto him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having under myself soldiers, and I say to this one, Go, and he goeth, and another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast forth into outer darkness. There shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And Jesus saith unto the centurion, Go thy way, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And the servant was healed in that hour. Thus far the text. Now this centurion has a heartfelt confidence in Christ and sets before his eyes nothing but the goodness and grace of Christ. Otherwise he would not have come to him, or he would not have sent to him, as Luke 7 says. Likewise he would not have had this bold confidence if he had not first heard of the goodness and grace of Christ. In this instance also the gospel is the beginning and incentive of his confidence and faith. Here we learn again that we must begin with the gospel and believe it and not look upon any merit or work of our own, as this centurion also advanced no merit or work, but only his confidence in the goodness of Christ. So we see that all the works of Christ exhibit examples of the gospel, of faith, and of love. We also observe the example of love, how Christ freely shows his kindness without any request or reward, as was said above. Moreover, the centurion also shows an example of love in that he took pity upon his servant as upon himself, even as Christ also had compassion upon us and did the good deed freely solely for the benefit of the servant, as Luke 7 says. He did it because the servant was dear to him, just as if he said, The love and affection which he bore to him impelled him to consider his need and to do this. Let us also do likewise and see to it that we do not deceive ourselves and rest satisfied and that we now have the gospel and yet have no regard for our neighbor in his need. The saying of Christ, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel, has been discussed with solicitude lest it should imply that Christ did not speak truly or that the mother of God and the apostles were inferior to this centurion. Although I might say here that Christ is speaking of the people of Israel, among whom he had preached and to whom he had come, and that therefore his mother and disciples were excluded, because they traveled with him and came with him to the people of Israel in his preaching. Nevertheless, I will abide by the words of the Lord and take them as they stand, and for the following reasons. First, it is contrary to no article of belief that this faith of the centurion was without a parallel among the apostles or in the mother of God. But whenever no article of faith openly contradicts the words of Christ, they are to be taken literally. 
and are not to be adapted and bent by our interpretation, neither for the sake of any saint or angel nor of God himself. For his word is the truth itself above all saints and angels. Secondly, such interpretation and adaptation spring from a carnal mind and intention, namely to estimate the saints of God not according to God's grace, but according to their person, worth, and greatness, which is contrary to God, who estimates quite differently according to his gifts alone. For he never granted to John the baptizer to perform miracles, John 10, as many inferior saints did. In short, he frequently does through inferior saints what he does not do through great saints. He concealed himself from his mother when he was twelve years old and suffered her to be in ignorance and error, as in Luke 2. On Easter Sunday he showed himself to Mary Magdalene before he showed himself to his mother and the apostles, John 20. He spoke to the Samaritan woman in John 4 and to the woman taken in adultery more kindly than he ever spoke to his own mother, John 8. And when Peter fell and denied him, the murderer on the cross stood firm in his faith. By these and similar wonders he shows that he will not have his spirit in his saints limited by us, and that we are not to judge according to the person. He wills to bestow his gifts freely, according to his pleasure and not according to our opinion, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. Indeed, even of himself, he says in John 14, He that believeth on me the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do. The purpose of all this is to prevent men from being presumptuous toward others and from elevating one saint above another and creating divisions. All are to be equal in the grace of God, however unequal they are in his gifts. It is his will to do through St. Stephen what he does not do through St. Peter, and through St. Peter what he does not do through his mother, so that it may be he alone who does all in all, without distinction of person, according to his will. In this sense also it is to be understood that at the time of his preaching he found not such faith either in his mother or in the apostles, whether or not he found then or afterward greater faith in his mother and the apostles or in many others. For it may easily be possible that at the time of his conception and birth he granted great faith to his mother and afterwards never or seldom like faith. At times he may have permitted it to decline as he did when he for three days she felt him to be lost to her in Luke 2. He deals thus with all his saints, and if he did not, the saints would doubtless fall into presumption and make idols of themselves, or we would make idols of them, and look more upon their worthiness in persons than upon God's grace. Now learn from this how foolish and void of understanding we are in regard to God's works and wonders, when we despise the plain Christian man and think that only the men with pointed mitres and the learned know and understand God's truth. Whereas Christ here exalts this heathen with his faith above all his disciples. This is because we hold to persons and dignities and not to God's word and grace. Therefore with persons and dignities we also plunge into every error, and then say, The Christian church and the councils has declared so. They cannot err because they have the Holy Spirit. Meanwhile, Christ is with those despised ones and gives dignitaries and councils over to the devil. Therefore note well how Christ exalts this heathen. He surpasses Annas, Caiaphas, and all the priests, scholars, and saints, all of whom ought by right to be the pupils of this heathen, not to say that they ought never to be above him in their opinions and judgments. 
God sometimes grants to a great saint no faith and to a small saint great faith, in order that one may always esteem another better than himself, as in Romans 12. The centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy. Herein is the great faith of this heathen, that he knows salvation does not depend upon the bodily presence of Christ, for this does not avail but upon the word and faith. But the apostles did not yet know this, neither perhaps did his mother, but they clung to his bodily presence and were not willing to let it go, as it says in John 16. They did not cling to his word alone, but this heathen is so fully satisfied with his word that he does not even desire his presence, nor does he deem himself worthy of it. Moreover, he proves his strong faith by a comparison and says, I am a man and can do what I wish with mine own by a word. Should not you be able to do what you wish by a word? Because I am sure, and you also prove, that health and sickness, death and life are subject to you, as my servants are to me. Therefore also his servant was healed in that hour by the power of his centurion faith. Now since the occasion is offered, and this gospel requires it, we must say a little about alien faith and its power. For many are interested in this subject, especially on account of the little children, who are baptized and are saved not by their own, but by the faith of others. Just as this servant was healed not by his own faith, but by the faith of his master. We here declare that in baptism the children themselves believe and have their own faith, which God effects in them through the sponsors, when in the faith of the Christian church they intercede for them and bring them to baptism. And this is what we call the power of alien faith. Not that anybody can be saved by it, but that through it, as an intercession and aid, he can obtain from God himself his own faith, by which he is saved. It may be compared to my natural life and death. If I am to live, I myself must be born, and nobody can be born for me to enable me to live. But mother and midwife can, by their life, aid me in birth and enable me to live. In the same way, I myself must suffer death. If I am to die, but no one can help to bring about my death, if he frightens me or falls upon me or chokes or crushes or suffocates me, in like manner nobody can go to hell for me, but he can seduce me by false doctrine and life, so that I go thither by my own error, into which his error has led me. So nobody can go to heaven for me, but he can assist me, can preach, teach, govern, pray, and obtain faith from God through which I can go to heaven. This centurion was not healed of the palsy of his servant, but yet he brought it about that his servant was restored to health. So here we also say that children are not baptized in the faith of the sponsors or of the church, but the faith of sponsors and of the church prays and gains faith for them, in which they are baptized and believe for themselves. For this we have strong and firm scriptural proofs. Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 18. When some brought little children to the Lord Jesus that he should touch them, and the disciples forbade them, he rebuked the disciples and embraced the children, and laid his hands upon them and blessed them, and said, To such belongeth the kingdom of God. These passages nobody will take from us, nor refute with good proof. For here it is written, Christ will permit no one to forbid that little children should be brought to him. Nay, he bids them to be brought to him, and blesses them, and gives to them the kingdom of heaven. Let us give due heed to this scripture. This is undoubtedly written of natural children. The interpretation of Christ's words as if he had meant only spiritual children, who are small in humility, will not stand. For they were small children as to their bodies. 
which Luke 18 even calls infants. His blessing is placed upon them, and of these he says that the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Will we say they were without faith of their own? Then the passages quoted above are untrue. He that believeth shall be condemned. Then Christ also speaks falsely when he says the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It is not really speaking of the true kingdom of heaven. Interpret these words of Christ as you please. We have it that children are to be brought to Christ and not to be forbidden to be brought. And when they are brought to Christ, he here compels us to believe that he blesses them and gives to them the kingdom of heaven as he does with these children. And it is in no way proper for us to act and believe otherwise as long as the word stands, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. Not less is it proper for us to believe that when they are brought to him, he embraces them, blesses them, and bestows upon them heaven, as long as the text stands that he blessed the children which were brought to him and gave heaven to them. Who can ignore this text? Who will be so bold as not to suffer little children to come to baptism, or not to believe that Christ blesses them when they come? He is just as present in baptism now as he was then. This we Christians know for certain. Therefore we dare not forbid baptism to children, nor dare we doubt that he blesses all who come thither as he did those children. So when there is nothing left here but the piety and faith of those who brought the little children to him, by bringing them they effect an aid that the little children are blessed and obtain the kingdom of heaven, which cannot be the case unless they themselves have their own faith, as has been said. So we also say here, the children are brought to baptism by the faith and work of others, but when they get there and the pastor or baptizer deals with them in Christ's stead, he blesses them and grants to them the faith in the kingdom of heaven. For the word and deed of the pastor are the word and work of Christ himself. With this agrees also what St. John says in his first epistle, chapter 2. I write unto you fathers, I write unto you young men, I have written unto you little children. He is not satisfied to write to the young man. He also writes to the children and writes that they may know the Father. From this it follows that the apostles baptized children also and held that they believe and know the Father just as if they had attained to reason and could read. Although somebody might here interpret the word children as adults as Christ designates his disciples sometimes, and yet it is certain that here they are meant who are younger than the young men. So that it is evident he is speaking of young people who are under 15 or 18 years of age and excludes nobody down to the first year, for these all are called children. But let us examine their reason why they do not think children believe. They say because they have not attained to reason, they cannot hear God's word, but where God's word is not heard, there can be no faith. Romans 10 says, Belief cometh of hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Tell me, is this Christian to judge God's works by our thinking and say, Children have not attained to reason, therefore they cannot believe? How if through this very reason you have already departed from the faith, and the children come to faith through their unreason? Dear friend, what good does reason do for faith in the word of God? Is it not reason which resists in the highest degree faith in the word of God, so that nobody can come to faith by means of reason? Reason will not endure God's word because it is first blinded and disgraced. Man must first die to reason and become, as it were, a fool, and even as unreasonable and unintelligent as a little child, if he is to become a believer and receive the grace of God, as Christ says in Matthew 18. 
except you turn and become as little children, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. How often does Christ hold before us that we must become children and fools and condemn reason? Tell me also, what kind of reason had the little children whom Christ embraced and blessed, and upon whom he bestowed the kingdom of heaven? Were they not still without reason? Why does he command to bring them to him and then bless them? Where did they get the faith which makes them children of the kingdom of heaven? Nay, just because they are without reason and foolish, they are better prepared to believe than adults and those possessed of reason, because reason is always in the way and with its large head is not willing to push through the narrow door. One must not look upon reason or its works when faith and God's work are under consideration. Here God alone works, and reason is dead, blind, and compared to this work, an unreasonable block, in order that the scripture may stand which says, God is wonderful in his saints, and, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, as he says in Isaiah 55. But since they stick so fast in reason, we must assail them with our own wisdom. Tell me, why do you baptize a man when he has come to the age of reason? You answer, he hears God's word and believes. And so I ask, how do you know that? You answer, he professes it with his mouth. What shall I say? How if he lies and deceives? You cannot see his heart. Very well, then, you baptize for no other reason than for what the man shows himself to be externally, and you are uncertain of his faith and must believe that if he had not more within his heart than you perceive without, neither his hearing nor his profession nor his faith will help him. For it may all be a delusion and no true faith. Who then are you that you say external hearing and profession are necessary to baptism? Where these are wanting, one must not baptize? You yourself must confess that such hearing and profession are uncertain, and not enough for one to receive baptism. Now upon what do you baptize? How will you justify your actions when you thus bungle baptism and bring it into doubt? Is it not the fact that you must come and say that it is not becoming for you to know or to do more than that he whom you are to baptize be brought to you and ask baptism from you? And you must believe or commit the matter to God, whether he inwardly truly believes or not. In this way you are excused and baptize aright. Why then will you not do the same for the children, whom Christ commands to be brought to him and promises to bless? But you wish first to have the outward hearing and profession, which you yourself acknowledge is uncertain and not sufficient for baptism on the part of the one to be baptized. And you let go the sure word of Christ, in which he bids the little children to be brought to him on account of your uncertain external hearing. Moreover, tell me, where is the reason of a Christian while he is asleep, since his faith and the grace of God never leave him? If faith can thus continue without the aid of reason, so that the latter is not conscious of it, why should it not also begin in children before reason knows anything about it? In the same way, I would like to say of every hour in which a Christian lives and is busy and occupied, that he is not conscious of his faith and reason, and yet his faith does not on that account cease. God's works are mysterious and wonderful, where and when he wills, and again manifest enough where and when he wills. Judgment upon them is too high and too deep for us. Since it is commanded here not to forbid little children to come unto him in order to receive his blessing, 
and it is not demanded of us to know the exact state of faith within, and the external hearing and profession are not sufficient for the one baptized, we are to be content that it is enough for us, the baptizers, to hear the profession of the one to be baptized who comes to us of himself. And this for the reason that we may not administer the sacrament against our conscience, as giving it to those in whom no fruit is to be hoped for. But if they assure our conscience of their desire and profession so that we can administer it as a sacrament that imparts grace, we are excused. If his faith is not true, let that rest with God. We have not given the sacrament as a useless thing, but with the consciousness that it is beneficial. All this I say in order that one may not baptize recklessly, as they do who even administer it with the deliberate knowledge, that it will be of no effect or benefit to the person receiving it. For therein the baptizers sin, because they knowingly use God's sacrament and word in vain, or at least have the consciousness that it is neither intended nor able to effect anything, which is an altogether unworthy use of the sacrament and a temptation and blasphemy of God. For that it is not administering the sacrament, but making a mockery of it. But if the person baptized denies and does not believe, you have done right anyhow, and have administered the true sacrament with the good consciousness that it is ought to be beneficial. However, those who do not come of themselves, but are brought, as Christ bids us to bring little children, the faith of these commit to him who bids them to be brought, and baptize them by his command, and say, Lord, thou dost bring them and command to baptize them. Thou wilt answer for them. On this I rely. I dare not drive them away, nor forbid them. If they have not heard the word by which faith comes, as adults hear it, they nevertheless hear it like little children. Adults take it up with their ears and reason, often without faith. But they hear it with their ears, without reason, and with faith. And faith is nearer in proportion as reason is less, and he is stronger who brings them than the will of adults who come of themselves. These inventive spirits stumble mostly because in adults there is reason, which acts as if it believed the word it hears. This, then, they call faith. Again, they see that in children there is as yet no reason, for they act as if they did not believe. But they do not observe that faith in God's word is quite a different and deeper thing than what reason does with the word of God. For it is the work of God alone above all reason, to which the child is just as near as the adult, yes, much nearer, and from which the adult is just as far as the child, yea, much farther. But this that is contrived by reason is a human work. I think if any baptism is certain, the baptism of children is most certain, because of the word of Christ, where he commands to bring them, whereas the adults come of themselves. In adults there may be deception because of the reason that is manifest, but in children there can be no deception because of their hidden reason, in whom Christ works his blessing, even as he has bidden them to be brought to him. It is a glorious word and not to be treated lightly, that he commands us to bring the children to him, and he rebukes those who forbid it. But hereby we do not mean to weaken or destroy the office of preaching, for God indeed does not cause his word to be preached for the sake of the rational hearing, since no fruit results from that, but for the sake of the spiritual hearing, which, as I have said, children also have as well, and even better than adults, for they also hear the word. What else is baptism but the gospel to which they are brought? 
However, they hear it only once, but they hear it more effectively because Christ, who is commanded to bring them, receives them. For adults have the advantage that they frequently hear and can think of it again. Yet even in the case of adults, it is a fact that the spiritual hearing is not affected by many sermons. But it may occur once during one sermon, and then he has enough forever. What he hears afterwards, he hears either to improve the first hearing or to destroy it again. In short, the baptism and consolation of children lie in the word, Suffer the little children to come unto me, forbid them not, for to such belong the kingdom of God. He has spoken this, and he does not lie. Therefore it must be right and Christian to bring little children to him. This can only be done in baptism. So also it must be certain that he blesses them, and bestows the kingdom of heaven upon them who come to him. According to the words, To such belongeth the kingdom of God. Let this be enough for this time. In Jesus' name, Amen. This has been a presentation of Classical Lutheran Preaching from the Sermons of Martin Luther, the John Nicholas Linker Collection of 1905, and reprinted by Baker Bookhouse in 1983. Oh. Listening to KNNA LP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.